Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Today we're going to cover Outliers, a book focused on the story of success. Sean White is the person who recommended this book in Tools of Titans. And Sean is a professional snowboarder and skateboarder. He's a two-time Olympic gold medalist and has the number two spot on Business Week's list of 100 most powerful and marketable athletes. Sean can be found at seanwhite.com or at seanwhite for Twitter and Instagram. And that is Sean with a U, so S-H-A-U-N. Malcolm Gladwell is the author of Outliers. He's uh, the author of a total of five books and is also host of the podcast Revisionist History. In 2005, he was one of Time's, Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. He's probably so, more influential now than, than in 2005 when he was part, one of those influential people too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, going to the next section of favorite quotes, I had two this time. My first favorite quote was, in line with the title of the book. And that's that outliers are those who have been given opportunities and who have had the strength and presence of mind to seize them. The second one is the outlier in the end is not an outlier at all. And this will, these two quotes will will set up a lot of uh, what I believe we'll be discussing today in this podcast. Yeah. Very much along the lines of the thesis of that, of that particular, particular of the book. Yeah. What, uh, what did, what did you like in the book? Yeah, my favorite quote in this one, actually, uh, there was one quote that stood out so much to me in this book that I actually was able to choose one favorite quote, which is really rare for me. Uh, there's a part, there's a point uh, at, in the uh, second to last chapter when he, uh, he brings things to a close and he says, the world could be so much richer than the world we have settled for. And I think that's just a beautiful quote, we can, and, and that's really what he's trying to get at with this particular book, because what he's, what he's trying to expose is the systemic issues, uh, the systemic things that are in place to give some people outsized advantages over others, uh, and also to keep lots of, that, that wind up keeping lots of people from, from achieving their, um, their full potential. And as a result of that, uh, basically, we wind up with a world that is uh is poorer than than what we've settled uh, that uh than than what we could have had uh as he put it world could be so much richer than the world we've settled for and i think that's absolutely true and in as much as his book spurs people to uh to do things that that increase the um uh the access for people for more people to uh, maximize their their potential. Uh, you know, th- this the more this book will uh, ultimately be something that uh, uh, doesn't just serve as a good read, but is is culturally important, which I, I think Gladwell ulti- Gladwell ultimately hopes for here. Yeah, and in the cultural, uh, getting into the the over overview and initial reactions, the one of the main impacts of this book is that it popularized the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. The so-called 10,000 hour rule, which he talks yeah, about. Do you, do you want to go in on, 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 uh, Gladwell's 
perception of the ten thousand dollar rule, and then I, I know we'll be getting into it deeper later. But do you want to just give a quick overview on on what he says it is? Well, I mean, I think we we probably should save save that until a little bit later in the discussion because that comes with a lot of uh, nuance and a lot of uh, of um, of critique as well from from including from some of the uh, the, the researchers that that Gladwell is piggybacking on here. Uh, but you know, basically. To put it in brief, the, the idea in the in the book is that uh, in order to achieve mastery, in order to achieve excellence in something, a person needs to put basically ten thousand hours in before they achieve. You know, it takes ten thousand hours to become a master at something. Uh, so, you know, in order to, in order to become a master uh, chess player or a grandmaster, uh, I can't remember if it was a master uh, rating or, or a grandmaster. I believe it was a grandmaster rating. Uh, then, you know, generally a person is going to have to have played chess for 10,000 hours uh, in, in order to become, uh, you know, a top level uh, basketball shooter. You're going to have to put 10,000 hours in to be to be consistent. You know, those sorts of things, uh, you know, elite golfers put in, you know, you have to put in 10,000 hours in order to have any hope of becoming an elite golfer. Uh, and that that's basically his idea is that, uh, you know, even with coding, you know, he uses Bill Gates and and uh, uh and, and others as, as some examples of that, you know, as, uh, as you get, as you approach 10,000 hours, you're finally becoming a master enough of something to, uh, to be able to, um, to actually get the benefits of, of all that practice. But, you know, the, if you, if you don't do that 10,000 hours, then, then you'll never actually reach, uh, the level of mastery that you, that you need. That's, that's sort of the bare bones base idea, although, you know, sort of stripped of nuance, uh, that he presents uh, in the book. Yeah, and, and I like how the way he does it in the book because he'll he'll provide the sensational story that, uh, and, and even some that you've recognized, uh, uh, whether it's musicians or or um, famous famous entrepreneurs, and so you get the the sensational story of what they created. And and a lot of times when we when we see the news or we read a story, that's all that we're presented with is the sensational story of how this person's made it. Uh, and, but and with, how they're a genius. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, how, and, how and unusual of, they are. Came out of nowhere. Um, just overnight, overnight sensation is, is the, the term that we, we often hear. But so Gladwell will start with that. And then he'll pull back the layers and show, well, actually, here's, here's what happened in this, this situation. And, and there was a lot of uh, talent. Sure, there's a ton of talent here. But there was also some luck and uh, somebody taking advantage of of great opportunities as well. They were, they were at the right place at the right time. And that's what really led to the overnight sensations. And, and when, don't forget culture was, and don't forget culture and, uh, and, and hard work as well. Those are the other big things here yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and especially in line with the 10,000 hour rule, that's 10,000 hours of, of, of hard work. Yeah. As, as I was reading outliers, one story that kept coming back to my mind was, uh, of, of Zach Brown, uh, Zach Brown, it, it seemed, in two, around 2008, just all of a sudden came out of nowhere and was this uh, overnight sensation of a, of a country music star. And the reality was that he was playing small bars at the tune of about 300 per year. So he was doing 300 different shows. A lot of these were just by himself. He, he didn't even have the, uh, the Zach Brown band with him. He would just do these shows. He loved playing. He loved meeting people. And he gathered quite a, a group of followers before he ever hit it big. In fact, one of his famous songs, Chicken Fried, that had been 
played in uh, in small bars around the, the U.S. for and especially in the South for for quite a while. So uh, it, it was always interesting to me to to see that to know how hard he worked. Uh, he very very smart just in terms of business and uh, to see how how many hours he put in. I I, I know he put well over ten thousand hours in all these different shows that he did uh, for for hundred people at a time or, or fewer. And uh, that's what that's what led. And that was the under underlying uh, nature of his overnight success. It's funny you mention him because uh, I've never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, again, uh, further uh, illustration of my uh, detachment from uh, the country music uh, scene. Uh, it still goes back, you know, goes all the way back to college when uh, Kenny Chesney came and practiced with us at Florida State and none of us had ever heard of the guy but he apparently was a was a big thing I ended up starting you know it's one of those things you've never heard of a person and then spend a couple days with that person and then you start seeing that person's name everywhere uh in checkout counters and all that other stuff but I'd never seen it before never noticed it start noticing that stuff after the fact yeah and what's funny is um I had the chance to play with the uh, play violin and I had the chance to play with Zach uh five different times that summer of 2008 and I had never heard of him before that either. And, uh, and you know, Chicken Fried was, was starting to get on the radio at that time. And so uh, I played with him and I played on Chicken Fried and I'd never heard the song before. And uh, so it's just kind of funny because uh, it was everyone else knew that song. Um, and and I, I never heard it. And here, here I am getting the chance to play it with him. But uh, yeah, there so you that go. Was, that was a cool experience. <laughs> But, you know, another good example, and, and, and there is no shortage of those examples where almost always, and there are exceptions to this, but almost always when, when, you, ha- when you see someone who, who arrives with tremendous success, that success is only uh, out of the blue or only uh, instant stardom or something like that, uh, you know, it's perceived to be instant stardom by those who weren't paying attention before that person became a star. But it normally takes, again, that decade period of putting in all the work before you actually begin to get the, the, the payoff for it. Uh, now, there are exceptions to that. You know, you get your, uh, your examples of somebody who gets discovered in a shopping mall or, or uh, you know, these open casting deals where suddenly uh, someone is... Uh, is is anointed as the next member of a boy band or something like that without really having put in any of the work and then they put in that work later but i think more often than not those people wind up proving the rule because they actually suck and uh <laughs> they, you know if you think about boy bands and so on they're they're examples of uh people who uh in many cases didn't put in the ten thousand hours to earn that success initially and they're thrust into it and more often than not they're not actually that good they're they're actually just front front people for the composers and so on who've actually put those 10,000 hours in and need somebody to to be the uh the coat hanger for their uh for their for their clothing essentially so yeah it's an, you know it's there possible. are more examples than not yeah it is possible though, that they did put 10,000 hours into uh their hair <laughs> yeah some of them some of them yeah i suppose that's true they've got to get that that perfectly messed up look right but as for what Gladwell's trying to do, uh, basically he's trying to demonstrate that success, a particularly prodigious success, 
is not something that is accomplished by any individual or uh, and is not the the result of rare genius or special gifts, but is rather the confluence of a variety of factors that involve culture and uh, special opportunities that are provided by just blind luck or by uh, the, the rules of the game and such that outliers who, you know, you would look at as geniuses and all this other, and, and, and those who are accomplishing what no one else could have are in many respects the product of their surroundings and of their particular opportunities and, and of uh, this, the various systemic factors uh, surrounding them. They're as much that as they are, you know, geniuses. And in many, in most cases, they're more that than they are, you know, special geniuses who are just born with the muse speaking that speaking to them from the beginning. And that's really where he's trying to get here. I mean, he uh, uh, early on talks about what sociologists call accumulative advantage. So basically, this this idea that uh, someone is born into a situation where systemically they have accumulated, or the people. That to whom they're born and among whom they're born have accumulated a series of advantages that then put that person in in the uh, in the position to seize just the right moment for for prodigious success. And yes, that person may be the only one from who was born into all that accumulative advantage who has that level of success, which says something. But it isn't just talent. And I think what he's trying to get at in this book is success is not just about natural talent. Natural talent is a very small fraction of what makes success. Yes, you can't be an NBA basketball player if you're, uh, you know, if you're, you're not going to be an NBA basketball player, aside from Muggsy Bogues, who was for just a little bit, if you're five foot three, you're just not going to have a long and successful NBA career. It's just not the way things work. You need to have a baseline level of certain, certain, uh, gifting or talent, but success is not not based on talent by and large. That's just one small ingredient uh, of the dish, and I think that's where he's he's really trying to go with this. Well, and and as he does that, it it was it was almost this odd side side effect of of also being to where it made it so it's not as unreachable. Uh, these outliers are not just geniuses that, that no one else can, can attain. Uh, I know that these set of, of things where, where the, the, there's got to be talent, luck, opportunities, culture, all that, a lot of those are out of your control, but some of them are in your control, uh, especially the, um, the 10,000-hour rule, and we'll talk more about it. But, but the, yeah, it's a, a tremendous amount of time, but you, you, you could put in the 10,000 hours. And so in an odd way, it, it kind of, took down the the genius factor or these people were overnight sensations because they're just geniuses and, and that and it almost made it uh, somewhat attainable that that you could you could reach that it, it, with the right circumstances or or just some some really hard work into into whatever it is that you're you're wanting to do yeah I, I, and again I think that's part of his aim is he wants people to to recognize that that uh, all that their heroes also, you know, put their pants on, 
uh, one leg at a time. Although, you know, I, I, I think it's important if you really want to be special to uh, set it up so that you, you, you know, put your pants down on the floor next to the bed and you can always put your pants on two legs at a time that way uh, just so that you can be different from everybody and better. But, you know, he wants to he wants to highlight that, you know, these are people who are are human beings who have flaws and have, you know, limitations much more than people realize. And they just happen to have seized the moment, the, the right moment for particularly what they what they accomplished. And that has that. I mean, there's a twofold. You know, I think you, you highlighted one aspect of that, but there's there's sort of a double edge to this. On the one hand, it shows that, wow, you know. A lot of people could have been Bill Gates if they'd had the right ingredients that Bill Gates was able to take advantage of, you know, the right cultural and, uh, uh, you know, educational and uh, temporal benefits that, you know, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or some of these other people had. A lot of people could have been just like those guys who could have done the same thing, but most people didn't. So, you know, uh, that on the, one, on the one hand, that means, you know, uh, lots of people could be successful like that. But on the other hand, it means those who didn't get those advantages didn't have the opportunity to be successful like that. So it's a little bit of a two-edged two thing. Uh, on the one hand, it's, it, it shows that uh, how, how much culture and how much you know, the rules of the game dictate who actually wins, who actually succeeds, and you know, how, how, how little it has to do with... Uh, with you know the the special talents or gifts of the of the of the individual actor. On the other hand, though, it does. You know, you can read this another way and say, well, you know, if Gates happened to be benefited from his unique circumstances, and you know, the the these uh, Jewish lawyers from New York happened to have found a way to maximize the benefits that they got from their disadvantages, how can I maximize my particular? circumstances to ma to to do something that no one else could do in in you know in my outside of my shoes so how can i maximize what I, what i could do to do that so that's the other side of it i think there's kind of two two ends to this i think he wants to emphasize more we should be more conscious of uh of of the systemic matters so that we can try to uh structure things so that more people have more opportunity to maximize their potential but on the other on the other hand, for the individual reader, it it does give us an opportunity to say, well, where where are my advantages, and where can I where can I apply them? Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and get to the uh, overall, you know, sort of the nitty gritty stuff. A little bit more detailed uh, discussions rather than the this uh, uh, overarching stuff. So uh, you you wanted to start this off, I believe. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into some detail. Yeah, and I actually wanted to start it off with a question for you. Uh, what What are the things that you've spent ten thousand hours on? Oh, geez, I had to think about this. Um, so, one, I probably have spent ten thousand hours uh, working on specific skills and uh, various develop, develop you know, various aspects of practice for basketball. Uh, I probably acquired that 10,000 hours or so somewhere between the ages of, uh, of eight years old when I decided I wanted to be a professional athlete, uh, about eight years old and 17 or so, 16, 17. I, I, I probably put in about 10,000 hours 
on basketball and on, you know, a lot of deliberate practice for that between those years, I, I would say somewhere in there. Um, if I'm not, well, if I'm not at 10,000 hours, that's probably close. What about football? Um, football, I, I came across a lot late. I came into a lot later. I mean, I played football in college, as you know, uh, but I didn't, I didn't actually play uh, football until uh, like competitive football. I, 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 uh, I mean, I, I played one year of, uh, of, you know, youth league when I was younger uh, and then decided to focus more on basketball and track and some other things. But I didn't play football again until my junior year of high school. And, and so uh, that was sort of more the beneficiary of all the work that I'd put in on basketball and in track and so on to be able to, to make that transition. But I uh, put in less time on that than, than some other things. And frankly, when I got to college, it really hurt me. It, it's one of those things I didn't have some of the background on some things that I, I could have to have been a more successful player at that level. Uh, I, I also probably would have been better off had I played my more natural position uh, in high school as well, had I actually made the, the switch permanent there going from receiver to quarterback. But, uh, but uh, in any case, how about, uh, how, about, how about if I rephrase the question for football, would you say you put in 10,000 hours of analyzing the game? Ooh. And that can be, a mixture of the work you're doing now in in coaching, in covering the games for in writing about the games, and then also in uh, having played the game. That's probably around. Yeah, I'm probably around ten thousand hours at this point, as far as that goes. Yeah, in terms of thinking, in terms of the anal analysis and breaking down tape and and all of that. But that but the thing is, that's still not ten. I would say that's still not ten thousand hours of deliberate practice in that regard. I've done a lot of uh, an analysis, which is getting closer to deliberate practice in that regard. But, um, but I'm 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 uh, probably a few thousand hours shy of 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 that. If if we're if we're getting down to the deliberate practice thing, which which we'll talk about in a little bit in in, in a moment, I will say that in terms of writing in general, uh, the process of writing and uh, you know all the pre-writing and all that other stuff, I, I think it's pretty 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 certain that I've spent 10,000 hours working my craft as a writer. Uh, I don't think there's, there's a whole lot of doubt about that. So that's another thing that I've spent at least 10,000 hours on, if not maybe close to double that. Uh, and then in terms of cross, and then I've also probably spent 10,000 hours doing, doing and planning and, you know, all of those things, uh, in, uh, as far as cross training, lifting weights, plyometrics, agilities, and, and those sorts of things related to sport, uh, I probably put somewhere between ten and twenty thousand hours in there as well, and that that and, and most of that stuff's pretty second nature now as a result, and stuff that you know, and even down to programming is a lot easier. I'm going to turn that question back to you though. What have you spent ten thousand hours on? Uh, I well, violin for sure. Okay, I started violin when I was three, and then took private lessons till I was fourteen. Yeah, you did and Suzuki method too, right? Yeah, Suzuki method. So what that entailed was uh, one hour a week of uh, with the actual instructor, and that was private. So it was just the instructor, and you know, my mom would usually be there, but my instructor and myself. So uh, there would also be group settings, but uh, the majority of the, the lessons themselves were one on one, and then um, I would practice with my mom uh, an hour a day, and I don't, I don't recall, but it was probably five days a week. So from age three to to fourteen. Um, at least an hour a day of practice uh, on the violin and then, and then different concerts and, and events. And then since I've, I've been 14, I've, been, I've played in the, uh, 
school orchestra a little bit. And then since then, it's been more uh, just jamming with different people, playing playing music with my wife, uh, playing at church, that sort of thing. So uh, probably 20,000 hours total on violin, um, if not more, just from uh, just 30, 34 uh, years now of, of doing that. Um, and then the other one is probably running. Uh, I, I started running in high school, uh, sorry, middle school. Uh, we would do like some running stuff in elementary school, but not competitively. And so competitively it was uh, middle school and then ran all four years of, of high school. Uh, it didn't run in college for, for college, but uh, would run a little bit. And then after college is when I really got into more of the distance running. So those two things, running and uh, violin, are, are what I know for sure I put, put 10,000 hours in. Yeah, and this this actually uh, this this the, the the way that we answered that question does bring up, I think the way that we each answered that question brings up uh, some of the some of the larger discussion about what that ten thousand hours really means, really how how that actually matters, uh, which is which brings up a bit of a debate because you know you hear people invoking the ten thousand hour rule, as it were. Uh, and, you know, you hear people talking about, well, you know, that means I need to play golf for 10,000 hours or practice golf for 10,000 hours. That, ne- that means I need to practice violin. I need to play violin for 10,000 hours or I need to run 10,000 hours in order to, to attain mastery. And it really doesn't work that way. And that's, that's something that, you know, Gladwell himself acknowledges. But there have been a, a, some critiques in particular by uh, Anders Ericsson, who... Uh, is the researcher that, that Gladwell piggybacks his research on. Erickson has some pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strident uh, differences in how he presents, uh, differences from Gladwell and how he presents this in his own book, particularly uh, the, the more, more uh, recent popular book, uh, Peak, which he, which he wrote based on, on his research on this. But he has some real differences. He, he kind of calls Gladwell out for sort of for for making this 10,000 hour average that came up in Erickson's uh research which of course Erickson is a uh, is a is a researcher and professor where I do not recall Florida State uh, University Stanford. baby oh, is he? oh that's right yeah he would understand right. excellence just by virtue of where he where he's uh he's uh he's he's doing his work so in any case uh Erickson's studies showed that, in, in particular, this had to do with, uh, with musicians and, and, and a few other things, but the musicians was, the one, was one of the ones that uh, Gladwell uh, seizes upon, is that the elite-level musicians who are, who, who are making it, the ones who really get there, averaged about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Uh, and, and so Gladwell talks about that, and then he just kind of extrapolates to this idea of, well, 10,000 hours is about how long you need to become a master at something and kind of makes a rule of it in the way he presents it in the book. And Erickson objects to this because, you know, uh, he, he objects to the idea that there's a magic number out there that, you know, well, if you're at 9,000 hours, you just can't be a master yet. You just, you haven't put in the necessary time. You you need a thousand hours. You know, some people, if you if you're more efficient in your practice methods, if you are 
more talent, I mean, talent does matter. If you're more talented, if you're, you know, if you are better nourished, I mean, there's any number of things that you could, you could put in there. Maybe you could do it in 9,000. Maybe you could do it in 8,000. Maybe you could do it in 5,000. Maybe for you, it'll take you 20,000. Or maybe you'll never get there. There's no magic number that, you know, this is one of the, one of the things that Erickson uh, talks about. But, you know, Erickson basically wants to emphasize that, yes, it's good to, to, to stress how it takes extended training before you reach truly elite levels of performance. But it's not actually the, the 10,000 hours that does it as much as it is putting in a large amount sort of unspecified, but 10,000 hours as a, as a kind of average figure can work, uh, put, but putting in that kind of deliberate practice, which winds up being Erickson's actual emphasis is less on the actual time frame and more on the way that people practice, which is, I think the, the bigger thing here. And, and, and so, um, you know, he wants, he wants to talk about the difference between the very elites and, and those who are not, uh, those who don't reach that is yes, there's a time frame aspect, but the bigger question is how they practice in the process of getting of, of accruing those hours. So just running for 10,000 hours or just playing violin for 10,000 hours or just working on basketball or just playing basketball for 10,000 hours isn't going to do it. It has to be a specific type of practice that, that and that's what uh, Erickson really wants to wants to emphasize. And and this is something actually I I, I found was one of my most uh, valued lessons. I, I taught a, a class on uh, the sociology of sport at Duke uh, a little over a year ago, and this is one I had a number of athletes in that class, and this was we 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 covered uh, a lot about deliberative practice and um, and some of these. Uh, aspects of purposeful practice and the the, the ways that uh, those who become elite and those who don't there's a, there's a decent amount of literature in sociology about those who become elite and those who fall short of that the differences in the type of practice they have and and I uh, I found that uh, my various athletes definitely um, definitely it rang true with them and they also in terms of their feedback they they found that to be maybe the most valuable stuff we covered in class the whole semester yeah well and i see that even in the two examples i gave uh violin was very deliberate uh to the point where just to to learn vibrato uh i, I never actually touched the instrument to practice vibrato on the instrument until i had practiced using other methods for for like for a year uh i would take <laughs> the thing that film in for old cameras 35 millimeter film we would take that and fill it with uh, beans and then hold that and then it had to make a specific sound and that was how we learned how to do vibrato uh, so it was very deliberate practice i mean it was each step along the way okay we're going to learn how to do this we're going to practice it outside of actually using it on the instrument then we'll, we'll learn how to do it on the instrument um but running uh so running when i was high school very deliberate uh because I was on the track team and, and there was a goal and uh, had an amazing coach. But now if, if I look back over the last eight years of running and I look at my time per mile eight years ago and time per mile now, it, it hasn't changed. And that's because most of the time I just go out and run. And I'm, I, I don't have that deliberate running practice in, in, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I'm just going out and running. And, and I enjoy that. I do for the enjoyment. But 
if I really wanted to get better, I would completely change how I'd be doing that. So for me, if I have put, I think I have, but if, if I've put in the 10,000 hours for running, 5,000 of those hours have not been deliberate. And, you know, what the question then is what, what kind of times would I have if those, those hours had been deliberate? If I had been working on speed workouts or a lot of things you, you suggest that I do on, on, on running <laughs> uh, uh, workouts, you know, what if I had been doing that, uh, where would I be as a runner right now? Yeah. And, 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 you know, again, going back to that for me as well, a lot of that for basketball was definitely deliberate practice was definitely purposeful practice. And we'll define those in just a moment. Um, but you know, some of the other, some of the, and that's why I, I, I was making that distinction with, you know, some of the football analysis and, and some of those things. Yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of hours on some of that, but not as much of it has been truly deliberate. Now the writing stuff I've definitely in, in research aspects of certain things in, in terms of my, my, uh, my career on that side, I've definitely put in, you know, multiples of, you know, multiple thousands, well over 10,000 hours. Uh, and that was much more deliberative. So, you know, and, and I do think that, that understanding deliberative practice or purposeful practice as the, the really important piece of this is, uh, is something that's worth, worth emphasizing. And, and, and Erickson is, is right to kind of ding, uh, Gladwell for, for that. Now, there are a couple of uh, interesting articles uh, that, on this, and you know, there's some, some interesting work on this we'll, we'll put in the show notes. One of the articles that I assigned for, uh, for my uh, sociology and, and, and uh, uh, well, a couple of the articles that I assigned for that sociology of sport class, or sport and society as it was called, uh, one was by Daniel Chambliss called The Mundanity of Excellence, which is a 1989 uh, article from, uh, in the journal Sociological Theory. Uh, this is an ethnographic report on, the, on stratification and Olympic swimmers. So basically it's looking at how Olympic swimmers versus those who fall just short of Olympic level, how they train, what are the differences, and so on. And, and this is a well-titled article, The Mundanity of Excellence. He, he, he basically observes how mundane these swimmers the differences are that excellence is something that is, is not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not quantitative difference that, that sticks out in this article or in, 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 in their practices. That's something that he, he emphasizes. It's the qualitative difference in how they practice. That was the biggest difference that showed up over and over and over again. And the same sorts of things have been applied. There's been other, uh, work that's been done to apply this to other sports. So, you know, there's another chapter, uh, in a in another volume, there's a it's a book chapter in uh, sociology of sport and social theory. Again, I'll link this in the show notes. Um, it's it's again it takes the the title from this one, it's the mundanity of excellence. But this one applies it to Tiger Woods and excellence in golf. Uh, this was back when Tiger was was still dominant, but it would still apply either way. Looking at again Woods uh, the, the the different ways that Woods qualitatively and quantitatively. Um, uh, became not just a, a, a great golfer, but a dominant one in his, in his, uh, in his era. And essentially, uh, you know, that, that, that wants again, to bring out the, 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 the point about, you know, how these, how one becomes elite by the, by these aspects of qualitatively different practice, not just quantitative. 
Uh, another piece, uh, and, and the other article that uh, that I assigned for that class that would that is is worthwhile for this uh, for this basic concept isn't so much looking at the um, at the uh, the specific practices of uh, of becoming excellent, but it, excellent, but it's looking at at a structure of how this works in uh, soccer soccer clubs in Europe. It's a, a, a New York Times Magazine article from 2010 by Michael Sokolov uh, called How a Soccer Star is Made. And again, you're looking at how these clubs basically sift down to get the best possible soccer players they can out of their club system by combining uh, constant deliberative practice and then uh, you know, doing that for 10, 10, 15 years in order to produce the players that ultimately become uh, valuable club contributors uh, as, as, you know, professionals in, in these major, uh, you know, in premier, premier type leagues. So this is where Erickson goes. This is where more of the sociological literature goes. Uh, and, I, and I suppose it's probably a little bit late in the discussion to do this, but to talk about what Erickson defines as purposeful or deliberative practice. And he says, and this is, uh, this is Erickson's words here, purposeful practice is when you actually pick a target, something that you want to improve, and you find a training activity that would allow you to actually improve that particular aspect. Purposeful practice is very different from playing a tennis game or if you're playing basketball scrimmages, because when you're playing, there's really no target where you're actually trying to change something specifically and where you have the opportunity of repeating it and actually refine it so you can assure what uh, you will improve in that particular aspect. And it, it, he puts it elsewhere uh, slightly differently uh, it, it, or you know, reinforces this. He says it, in, uh, deliberative practice or deliberate practice involves well-defined specific goals and often Im involves improving some aspect of target performance. It's not aimed at some vague overall improvement. And again, that gets back to what you were talking about, about the stuff that's less fun. The reason you go out and run and rather than working on, you know, breaking down specific pieces of, you know, of, of what could make you just a little bit faster here or there. It's because you run because you like it, not because you're trying to become an elite runner. And as he puts it, this is a quote uh, from, uh, from, uh, uh, from Peak. Deliberate practice takes place outside one's comfort zone and requires a student to constantly try things that are just beyond his or her current abilities. Further, uh, it demands near maximal effort, which is generally not enjoyable. So most people don't put 10,000 hours of that kind of work into anything ever. Now, that said, Gladwell's response to this, and Gladwell had a, uh, a reply to some of Erickson's critiques uh, to this, actually, uh, on, a, uh, on a Freakonomics podcast uh, a while back. Gladwell's comment on this was, what I was trying to do here was not create a 10,000-hour rule in terms of, well, if you just get your 10,000 hours. He understands that er Erickson doesn't mean that and that the research doesn't show that. His point, though, was... The, uh, and he says, here's, here's the quote from that Freakonomics episode. To me, the point of, of 10,000 hours is, if it takes that long to be good, you can't do it by yourself. And that's really the function of it in, in the book, is to show it takes a lot. <laughs> it takes a lot of help. Yeah. And, and circumstances outside of your control in, in, in a lot of the cases. 
Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much to talk about, you know, from this book. I mean, I, I feel like we can't really even do it justice because so far of all the books that, that we've read, that we've covered so, to this point, and, you know, we're, this is our uh, seventh uh, episode here. So far, this is by far my favorite, uh, my favorite book that we've read. And you know, there's just so much, so much food for thought here, so much discussion about education and about the, the kinds of things that are necessary if people are going to, to be successful, if, if, if societies are going to be successful. And there's just so much valuable stuff here. I mean, I, I, I loved the discussion uh, of the uh, KIPP program in New York and, and how uh, that provides different opportunities. I, I, some, one of the things that was really interesting to me in this book, and I mean, there, there's just so many interesting anecdotes throughout, uh, was this idea that uh, basically the, the, the achievement gap between uh, poorer and minority students and, uh, and, and basically more highly privileged students did not have to do with the money in the, in, uh, in, in the schools. It didn't have to do with... Uh, with, you know, the quality of teachers or anything else so much as what he says here, when it comes to reading, he says, uh, uh, he says, poor kids may outlearn rich kids during the school year, but during the summer, they fall, they fall far behind. When it comes to reading skills, poor kids learn next, learn nothing when school is not in session. The reading scores of the rich kids, by contrast, go up a whopping 52.49 points in the uh, in in the when school is not in session between first and fifth grade, but the poor kids go up zero. They go up 0.26 points, so it's 52.49 points versus 20.26 points. So the poor kids learn nothing when school is in session. The reading scores of the rich kids, by contrast, go up by a whopping 52.49 points. Virtually all the advantage that wealthy students have over poor students is a result of, of differences in the way privileged kids learn when they are not in school. And again, yeah. that's one of those things that just that that coheres so closely to what I've observed in my own life and, and, and in those around my life. In, in being in education and, you know, my family having been in education and all this. And he says, you know, there's, there, there's differences in parenting style. There's, uh, you know, the, the problem of, 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 uh, of breaks of, of what happens in summer break, you know, with, with people who have one parenting style versus others or have resources to support that. And so much of this, quite honestly, I mean, if that's the case, that's an easy policy thing to change, Right. It's, it's things like that, that, that and, and it's, it's highlighting that little cultural things having to do with, and with, with parents. And again, this gets back to the, um, the, the often, often brought up by some and often ignored by others in the, in the education uh, discussions that the single biggest factor in terms of educational success is parental involvement, mm-hmm. not quality of teachers, not schools, whatever parental involvement ends up having impact in terms of what school, what schools those kids go to and all that as well. But, but parental involvement being the thing, well, it's because of this, this kind of factor. And that's one of those things that I looked at and just went, wow, 
the other thing that was interesting about that is he, is he talks about the reason that that we had summer vacation begin with, and it was more <laughs> to to coincide with the the farming calendar. So and, and it's just stayed that way. And, and as people have left the farming uh, as a as a lifestyle, uh, the the school system has stayed that way. But when you, when you're you know, we always hear that. Uh, that other countries they're just killing us in math and science and stuff. But if you look at these these countries, they they uh, some of the countries don't have summer breaks or they're they're much shorter. Um, and so then the the U.S. You, they're competing with students uh, around the world now, and there's a huge advantage because these students in other countries may be in school 40 to 60 more days per year. And it's all because of this kind of antiquated system of, of having a summer break. Uh, well, even more than that, normally the, the American, uh, American school year is about 180 days, right? Well, in, uh, in, in, in some parts of the world, it's 292. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's like another school year, basically. Yeah. Yep. So, and, and, and I think, you know, for, for the listener, you ought to, you ought to spend a little bit more time talking about that because it's not just farming. It's a specific type of farming that, that he brings out, brings out here to expose the difference culturally on why we have these long extended summer breaks where rich kids can, you know, get really big advantages over the, over the poor kids and other countries don't have the same kinds of breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I, I can't remember uh, the specifics for the U.S. side, but I, I do remember with Asia, it was uh, rice, a lot of the rice patties, and, and that seems to be more involved. And in, in, in one of the quotes here is, no one can rise before dawn 360 days a year fails to make his family rich. And this comes from a quote from southern China where he's talking about uh, some of the estimates put the annual workload of a wet rice farmer at 3,000 hours a year. <laughs> So, so that's a little different than, uh, than uh, uh, the system in the U.S., if, if you want to describe that, of, of, of everything kind of coming to a head altogether as opposed to throughout the year. Yeah, that's a little different from planting corn and then just waiting on the rain to make it come up where you have some downtime. Wow. And it would come up during the summer, so that, that's, that was the reason for the, the school year is that, that they would need the, the kids to help uh, come harvest time. Um, but we don't really have that, that issue anymore. So now it's just kind of, a. <laughs> it's, it's actually doesn't work well with our, our current system because all the parents, parents are out working and, uh, and now I've got kids who are at home all summer. So it, it's kind of interesting how that has not changed with the change from agriculture to more of service industry, uh, in, in the U S. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, and, and again, this is one of, the hi- one of the highlights of this book. There's so many places where the past just dominates what happens in the present. Past culture, past practices just continue over to the present, and they c- continue to ca- the past casts its long shadow over the present. And we think, you know, we're born, you know, we, we wind up born on second or third base, and we go through life thinking we, we, we hit a double or a triple, but in reality, it's the long, the long shadow of the past that stuck us on the base where we are. And in some cases, it's the very thing that holds us back. You know, it's, it's one thing to get the special advantage of being born to disadvantage, like some of the, the Jewish lawyers in the, in the one chapter in this book, that where, you know, they happened to go into practicing a particular form of law that was 
not all that great at that time, but all of a sudden became the place to be. And because they'd already they'd already been the players there, they they wound up uh, sort of s surprisingly advantaged in that in that uh, avenue. Well, it's also you know the 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 Nordic looking kid that they used as a as a counterexample there. You'd have bet on him to be successful based on that long shadow, but as it turns out, sometimes these things can be pretty fickle and things reverse reverse course. So interesting the way that, that he really masterfully writes these various stories and weaves these anecdotes together to make, make some of those points. Yeah. All right, yeah. we probably should uh, get to uh, get close to wrapping this, and I know you had some stuff you wanted to, uh, to pull in from uh, Sean White. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I've got, I, I could probably talk forever, uh, on, uh, you know, for another couple hours on this book, but, uh, in lieu of this becoming a, a monologue and going beyond, uh, what's necessary for really a, a, a worthwhile discussion about a book that I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast should read, uh, let's come back to the big picture. All right. So most of the time in, in the book tools of Titans, the, where the book suggestions come in it's usually just a sentence uh, tim ferris will say so and so suggested this book or they gifted this book the most but for sean white and for outliers uh, he dedicated an entire page tim ferris pretty much just quotes for a whole page of, of uh, the impact that that outliers had on sean white and, and how he how that helped him look at his own life and, and see where he where he arrived um, so I thought, I thought it'd be a great way to just combine everything we talked about by reading what Sean White here said here. So, on being an outlier. This comes from page 274 in Tools of Titans, where Tim Ferriss talks about Sean White and what he had to say about reading outliers. So, I'm just going to read it directly from, from the book here of Tools of Titans. I was reading outliers, and I was amazed by the story about the hockey players and the kind of anomaly in the system. I started applying that to my own life and thought, well, people would think I was at a disadvantage growing up in Southern California. Well, I don't find that as a dis disadvantage at all. It was probably sunny and nice out of the majority of the year or the winter season. Our winters aren't like somewhere in Colorado or Vermont, so the number of days I could actually go ride was probably, I don't know, double or triple the amount of someone growing up somewhere else. Then, at the same time, the person who was building the parks at Bear Mountain and Snow Summit Resort in Southern California it was this small mountain. So the management was like, oh yeah, do you want, do what you want. And the guy was building these amazing jumps, this amazing half pipe. He now builds all of the courses for the world's best events. That's where he got his start at these mountains. You know, they weren't going to let him go to Aspen and tear up some, the groomer trail or whatever. Also the half pipe had a T-bar like a tow rope on it. So I was thinking, wow, the number of days now that I'm riding because it's sunny and the number of runs I'm getting because I don't have to unstrap and hike back up I would just do my trick, get back on the chair, and go back up. I realized I'm packing in months of training in these small windows compared to someone else who lives in Vermont or someone, something, where it's well below freezing and they are hiking the pike. They're tired. You know, when you're cold, it's frightening to go, okay, I'm going to try this flip. No, you're not. It's super intimidating now. It's cold, and you want to go home and get warm. I was in these conditions where the snow was soft. I had some guy building the best terrain around, and so... A lot of fun things that I was able to apply in my life from that book. And that's where he closes off on that. But it's kind of cool. He, him looking back as a snowboarder and a, and a, and a skateboarder, um, 
saying he had probably two to three times as much time as, as someone growing up in, in another part of the country uh, and, and just had other other advantages that, that were unique to his situation, his time, his place. Uh, so that, I thought that was kind of a neat, neat way to close out. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's another good example also of how Sean White's 10,000 hours might be different from someone else's 10,000 hours, right? Because Sean White is getting more done in his 10,000 hours or, you know, 2,000 hours of not having to hike up and do, an, do all that extra stuff. 2,000 hours might be equivalent to somebody else's 10,000 because of how efficient his particular for version of practice was. Yet it's a great example to close on. All right, so that is going to do it for us today. Before we get out of here, just a reminder that you can follow along with us at booksoftitans.com and of course, connect to us on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past episodes through iTunes, the Android Marketplace, or your podcast manager of choice. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to give us an effusive five-star rating on iTunes and share your favorite episodes on social media. We'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be... Born Standing Up by Steve Martin. On behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Ross, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep reading, keep improving. I made this.